Well, last time <coughs> we began the discussion on relative and ultimate bodhicitta, that is, the understanding of compassion and emptiness. And this union was beautifully expressed <coughs> in those lines by the Tibetan <coughs> Master Shabkar when he said, The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. So we discussed in some detail the understanding of and the experience of emptiness. And also the understanding that the mind is not simply empty, like space. Space doesn't know anything. The mind is empty like space, but also has an innate knowing capacity. <clears throat> and this knowing capacity is not something that we have to get. It's not something that we're lacking, <clears throat> but rather it's something that we need to recognize in terms of our own minds, to recognize it and come back to it again and again. As we let go of all the various and subtle attachments. So the Buddha highlighted a teaching that makes this recognition of the mind's aware nature, teaching that makes this recognition possible. When he said that the mind's nature is luminous and it is defiled by visiting defilements by visiting obstructions. This is the reminder <clears throat> that contrary to how it often feels in our practice and in our lives, the defilements are not intrinsic to our minds. It's not who we are. They are visitors. They come as visitors and we can actually free ourselves from them. So in one exchange the Dalai Lama had with a student, he emphasized this point and he did it in a way that was a bit uncharacteristic, at least in the times that I've heard him, because he was, he was quite fierce in his reply. So somebody had asked the question, you know, I do not feel worthwhile as a person. Has anybody ever felt that? <laughs> you know, I do not feel worthwhile as a person. <clears throat> How can I work on this as a meditation student? And then the Dalai Lama's response was, you should not be discouraged. Your feeling I am of no value is wrong, is absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself. So it's this clear reminder that even though that feeling may arise, so it's real in that sense, but it is not true. So that's a useful uh, phrase to keep in mind. Real but not true. All the defilements are visitors to the mind. And the Buddha taught 
many skillful methods and means, you know, to weaken and finally free ourselves from these defilements. And this is everything we've been engaged in doing. <coughs> and freeing ourselves, weakening and freeing ourselves from the defilements is really, defilements is simply another word for suffering. It's the defilements in the mind, rooted in greed and hatred, delusion, which are the cause of suffering in our own lives <coughs> and in others. So there are many skillful means, many skillful methods for understanding this and for freeing ourselves. But there's one teaching in particular that can, with one stroke, cut through the morass of our entanglements. So even though there are many methods, you know, and many teachings, there's one that gets just to the heart of suffering and freedom. Just as a little <coughs> sidebar here. Uh, not sure whether this is history or a myth, but in the time of Alexander the Great, uh, <coughs> there was a king in what is now Asia Minor, and he had created, uh, I think that the country was called Gordos, and he created this knot called the Gordian Knot, you know, a very entangled knot. And it said that, he said that whoever could untie the knot would marry his daughter the princess and inherit the kingdom. You know, as in so many fairy tales. And a lot of people came and tried and nobody could untangle the knot. And then Alexander the Great, as it said, came through, took one look at the situation took his sword and sliced through the knot. So that's what the Buddhist teaching does. We don't have to spend forever trying to untangle things if we understand the way to actually cut through with one stroke. <clears throat> Ready? <laughs> this is all you have to know. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And in the sutta, it's, the Buddha says this, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. He says, whoever understands this has understood the whole Dharma. Whoever practices this has practiced the whole Dharma. Whoever realizes it has realized the whole Dharma. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And again, in many other places, you know, the teaching says, having seen with correct wisdom, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself, one is liberated through non-clinging. So the methodology of freedom is actually very simple. It's not always easy, but it's simple. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. <clears throat> so there's one image which describes this movement in the mind when it goes from 
a place of clinging and attachment, when it goes from being contracted in some self-center to the wisdom, when it goes from that to the wisdom mind, we could say of open awareness. And this is the image of ice and water. Now we're all people, especially who live in New England, all familiar with ice. It's hard, it's frozen. And this represents the experience of the mind when it's lost in concepts, when it's lost in the mind-created world of past and future, when it's caught up in the stories and the felt experience of I am, when we're lost in the many movies of our minds. This is the mind contracted, it's solid, it's like ice. Ice is when the mind is identified with any arising object at all. When we're identified with the body, when we're identified with various thoughts, when we're identified with emotions that are arising, when we're identified with awareness itself, all of this is the contraction of the mind symbolized by ice. So watch how often this contraction happens in the course of a day. You know, we're caught up in various moments of wanting. So we can just feel everything gets, gets contracted. I'm wanting. Or especially now for people who may be leaving in a day or two, caught up in future thoughts, in planning going along and then all of a sudden the planning mind comes and we don't see it, we're not mindful, we're identified with it. So we've narrowed our world, we've narrowed our experience, we've contracted, we've solidified it. You know, it's when we're caught up in various mind states of worry or irritation, impatience. It also becomes ice in a way that's often overlooked when we become identified with wholesome states of mind. You know, maybe we're experiencing a place of calm or peace or spaciousness. And instead of being mindful of those as arising states, impermanent states, we become attached to them. There's a time in practice when all of the factors of enlightenment that we are cultivating, you know, of mindfulness and energy and rapture and equanimity and concentration and calm and all of the factors of enlightenment, there's one time in practice when they all become what are called corruptions of insight. And it's not because all of a sudden they have become unwholesome. These are wholesome states of mind, factors of awakening, but at that particular time, we get caught by them, we become attached to them, we become identified with them. And so at that point, that attachment is a hindrance on the path. So the, all of this is ice, meaning the mind solidified or contracted into some sense of attachment of I, of mine,
So water represents the nature of awareness, the open nature of awareness, naturally radiant, luminous. The mind, or because is luminous, it's defiled by visiting defilements. So water represents this luminous mind. Water is unfrozen, unfixated on anything. Now the really important discovery, and this can be a transformative understanding in practice, is that water, this open, free-flowing mind, is nothing other than melted ice. It's just that moment that happens in our experience when we come out from being lost, from being lost in a thought, from being lost in some movie, being lost in some mind drama. You know, for all our involvement in these mental fabrications, these mental stories, nothing was really happening. It was just a thought appearing in the mind. Just some different mind states, some different emotions coming out of conditions and then disappearing. It's like when we come out of each of our mind dramas and realize that it was only a play of thought and image and emotion. So this is good news. It's simply the moment of dropping down from any identified involvement with what we're doing. And so watch to see, especially in these days of transition, for those of you who are leaving, this is going to happen a lot. You know, we're going to get caught up in the busyness of our ideas about leaving and what we have to do and planning and packing and whatever it is. Notice the difference of when the mind is caught up in this involvement and then see in any moment it's possible to drop down into the actual moment of experience of the sensations of a movement, the sensations of your feet on the floor. Going from ice to water, from attachment to non-clinging, can happen in a moment. And it's not only a moment here. When we really understand this about our minds, we see that the depth of practice, the freedom of not clinging, is available at any moment, at any time in our lives. It does not have to be in special circumstances. And you don't have to have long periods of sustained concentration although all of those are helpful, it's simply recognizing that water is nothing other than melted ice. We can drop into that space of openness, of awareness, of freedom in any moment. This is from a Tibetan master, his name is Zigar Kongtrul. He said, the experience of emptiness is not found outside the world of ordinary appearance. This is really important to understand because 
it's so easy to create some notion of emptiness as being you know, some deep mystical meditative experience that maybe in 20 years we'll taste. No, the experience of emptiness is not found outside the world of ordinary appearance, as many people mistakenly assume. In truth, we experience emptiness when the mind is free of grasping at appearance. As soon as we stop grasping, as soon as we can let go of the clinging or the identification with whatever it is that's arising, already the mind has dropped in to a place of openness, emptiness, of freedom. And as the Buddha said many times in the suttas, when the mind doesn't cling, it is not agitated. So this also is something you should check out. You know, we can read these words or hear these words and think, oh, that sounds right. But it's really an invitation for us to check it out. Is it true for us that when the mind doesn't cling, it is not agitated? And it gets very interesting to explore, okay, when we are in the free flow of water, when we're simply you know, in the process of changing phenomena, notice whether the mind is clinging or not. And if it's not clinging at that time, Notice whether the mind is agitated or not. So it's, it's like we test these words for ourselves. When the mind doesn't cling, it is not agitated. And when not agitated, it personally attains Nibbana. So again, the Buddha is pointing to a very direct path here, you know, of understanding where freedom lies. Of course, some care is needed here. Because sometimes we think we're in the free-flowing water, the free-flowing, open nature of awareness. But it's actually not water, it's slush. You know, and what this means is that there may be subtle attachments, not big blocks of ice that we can see clearly. It's slushy. So those are the subtle attachments we might have, the subtle likes and dislikes going on. Or we're carried along in the mind drift of very light thoughts. You know, we're caught up in them, but we hardly are aware that we're caught up in them, because they're not the big heavy dramas. Or the slush becomes uh, happens when we are identified with awareness itself. And this is perhaps the most subtle kind of identification or attachment. It's as if we make a nest of awareness and have the sense of self settle right into that. Well, I'm the one who's aware. This awareness is me. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Not the body, not thoughts, not feelings, not emotions, not sights, not sounds, not awareness itself. Everything should be seen with perfect wisdom. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. So there's something profoundly liberating 
when we understand that this is applied to everything, no matter what is arising in our experience. We can take Alexander's sword and cut through that knot of I and mine. But when we <coughs> are in the unobstructed flow of awareness, of openness, when it is as it's symbolized by just the flow of water, empty of the contraction of self, then we experience that third aspect of the mind's nature, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, that's the knowing quality, ceaselessly responsive. So that's the third aspect. There's a great spontaneity and responsiveness to situations when the mind is free from the contraction of self. It's like water flowing down a mountain. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't flow down in a straight line. When water flows down the mountain, it responds completely and appropriately to the topography of the mountain. And in doing that, it finds the shortest way down the mountain. And so that's a beautiful image for the ceaselessly responsive quality of the heart and mind. When it's not contracted into a self-center, it responds appropriately to whatever situation is arising. So this was expressed also very <coughs> clearly by the ninth century, the very great Chan master Rinzai. He was describing the creativity and the potential of a mind that's not imprisoned by the notion of self, of I. He called such a person a person of no reliance. That's, that's the phrase he used. Okay, this, this is a person free from that contraction of self, of I and mine. Said, if someone comes to me asking for the Buddha, as a person of no reliance, I present myself in a state of purity. If she or he asks for a bodhisattva, I present myself in a state of mercy and benevolence. If they ask for nirvana, complete enlightenment, I present myself in a state of utter serenity. Though there are hundreds of thousands of states, as a person of no reliance, my presentation of various states according to the requirements is just like the moon that freely presents its image on every surface of water. Kind of, I love that sense of the freedom and the creativity of a person of no reliance, no reliance, no contraction into I then it is ceaselessly responsive in completely creative ways, in appropriate ways, to whatever the situation is. This responsiveness is the manifestation or the expression of compassion, 
it's sometimes the unspoken but deep motivation that wants to alleviate the suffering of beings. And the less self-centered we are, the more spontaneous and the more naturally compassion arises. So Dilko Kensei Rinpoche, <coughs> he was really one of the great Dzogchen masters of the last century. He said, when you recognize the empty or the selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So this is really a beautiful expression of the union of emptiness and compassion. They're two sides of the same thing. We could say compassion is the activity of emptiness. But although compassion is this natural expression of the understanding of the experience of selflessness, it is also a quality that we can practice and cultivate even before we're abiding completely in this selfless state. We don't have to wait to be fully enlightened in order to cultivate and practice compassion. So compassion arises when we're willing to open to and come close to suffering, whether it's our own suffering or those of others. This is a profound and difficult practice because as we know, it's not always easy even to open to our own pain. You know, and very often we don't particularly want to be with the pain of others. The Dalai Lama acknowledges, he said, compassion and love are precious things in life. Compassion and love are precious things in life. They are not complicated. They are simple, but difficult to practice. So this itself is interesting. Why should something that is so ennobling and simple, why is it that it's difficult to practice? When we look at our own experience, we see that there are very strong tendencies in most of our minds that in one way or another, keep us, in the face of suffering, keep us in denial, or we are defended against the suffering in some way, or indifferent or apathetic. So there are countless examples of this, but I, I just want to give one, this is a very small example, but it highlights the tendency. So a friend of mine uh, was in the hospital having surgery and you know had an intravenous drip. And the doctor was trying to kind of insert it, you know, and, you know, the needle in the arm and, and couldn't find the vein. So, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that experience. It's a bit distressing, you know, so kind of poking around. And my friend was exhibiting some signs of distress, you know, as this was happening. And the doctors, in seeing her distress, uh, the doctor's comment was, what's the matter? It doesn't hurt. 
and, and it was just, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure the doctor was a fine doctor and well-intentioned, but it just illustrates the tendency, of, it couldn't, couldn't at least at that time actually let in the fact, yeah, there was some suffering here, there was some suffering going on, but, you know, in a kind of maybe a professional detachment or something, or just a personal, you know, inability at that moment. But we do this a lot in different circumstances where we, for one reason or another, we just close off. We don't actually let it in. So these tendencies, whether it's, you know, being defended against it or indifferent, you know, or apathetic, these are great barriers to the arising of a compassionate response because compassion arises when we're able to come close to suffering. That's precisely the condition for compassion to arise. So as an experiment, you know, in your own lives and in your own practice, pay attention to the next time you're approaching a situation of suffering. It might be pain in your own body. What's, what's the response to that? Oh, good, let me open to this. Is that the first response? Or is it, oh, oh I hope it goes away. You know, just watch, watch what the habituated uh, reaction is. Watch what happens when some difficult or painful emotion arises. Are we willing to open to the suffering of it? Can we be compassionate? with regard to it. You know, I think I've mentioned to many of you, perhaps in the hall or in interviews, it's so interesting to me that all of us <coughs> really have an instinctive understanding of how to be with the suffering of a child. You know, if there's a child that may be going either physical pain or some emotional distress, you know, maybe very afraid or whatever, what would be most people's instinctive response? Would it be to kind of beat the kid? Probably not. <laughs> or, oh, you shouldn't be feeling that. No. Oh, you're a terrible person <laughs> for feeling that. I don't think so. Mostly, quite naturally, wouldn't we just be there, kind of in a caring, loving, compassionate way, just holding the space, knowing that it's going to change? You know, we wouldn't be caught up in it, but we would be present for it with compassion. So it's so interesting that we actually have this capacity and know it for ourselves, but somehow many people find it very difficult to actually apply that same understanding to our own suffering. But that's the quality that's needed. We need to, okay, this is okay, just let me feel it. Can I feel compassion in, in a kind and caring way? Watch the reaction when we come across, come up against suffering. Maybe it's the interaction with a difficult person. What's our first response? 
you know, do we contract into some sense of either defensiveness or aggressiveness or, or can we settle back and open and actually see the suffering that may be in that person? You know, or how are we when we meet the tremendous amount of suffering that's in the world? You know, whether it's political or religious violence, you know, huge. You know, or racial injustice, huge suffering. You know, or natural disasters. You know, all of this, <coughs> we often face these, whether it's in person or through, in these days, the very vivid images of the media. We become very aware of these situations of suffering. But what is our response? You know, do we feel uneasy in the face of suffering? Do we close off? Do we pull back? You know, are we indifferent? Do we turn away? Or do we let it in? So as, <clears throat> as most of you know, one of the people who most <clears throat> spectacularly manifests <clears throat> this compassionate openness and, uh, is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He's, you know, he's often known as the compassion of the Bodhisattva of compassion. So I just want to read this little description uh, of somebody who often travels with him as, and has written a lot about him, Pico Ayer. So this was from an article. Uh, so he wrote, while going through an almost unimaginably busy schedule on a typical day of touring, the Dalai Lama will be hustled toward his next appointment, and then suddenly, alone among a crowd of 50 or so, he'll veer off because he's seen a child in a wheelchair by herself and ignored in one corner. Often he'll respond warmly to even the pushiest person trying to make contact with him on the street. And that is perhaps not only because he tries to live without aversion as well as attachment, but because he senses that that person is in need of some, some form that that person is in some need, lonely or unsure of himself, and the pushiness is just an expression of deep pain. You know, and it's, I like that because it's so simple. You know, it's just the natural responsiveness of an empty, open heart. You know, it's wherever the need is, that's where the compassionate response manifests. So in order to do this, in order to further this ability within ourselves, the ability to come close to suffering, to open to it, you know, not close off, we, we need mindfulness and we need equanimity, we need openness. It's learning to let things in, it's learning to let the suffering in 
without drowning in it, without being overwhelmed by it, without being overcome by sorrow. And here we can see the great connection <coughs> or the great gift that mindfulness gives to compassion. It's mindfulness which allows us to recognize and to be open. Oh yes, this is a state of suffering without getting swallowed up by it. So mindfulness is like a life vest, you know, in the fast rushing stream of our lives. So quite a few years ago, I was on a uh, rafting trip out west, Idaho, on the middle fork of the Salmon River, which is a famous, a well-known place for whitewater rafting. And I was a complete novice in this. And in addition to the big rafts, you know, the, the guides had these little one-person inflatable rafts that we could, you know, get into just, just one of us and kind of paddle down the river. So I thought, oh, that'll be fun. So I get into one of these rafts, and then after a little while, the guide is yelling at me, watch out for the hole. I had no idea what he was talking about. A, a hole in a river? <laughs> so I, just, I had no idea what he was referring to. I soon found out. <laughs> a hole in a river, for those of you who may not know, is when the water goes over a rock in a certain way and it goes and it creates like a little whirlpool, you know, at the bottom of the rock. So I was heading right over the rock into that little whirlpool. So all this happened very quickly and I got pulled down. But fortunately I was wearing a life vest, you know, and the life vest pushed me back up. But the, the force of the, the whirlpool pulled me down again, pushed life jacket pushed me up. So this happened two or three times and then finally I exited the whirlpool. <laughs> That's the kind of protection that mindfulness offers. <laughs> mindfulness is like this life vest. We are going to get caught up. You know, we're going to fall into the hole in the river of our flowing experience. That's going to happen at different times. But if we're mindful, we don't get overwhelmed. We don't drown in it. You know, the mindfulness brings us back to the surface and it enables us to then be with whatever the experience is. This is what makes compassion response possible. So, in a very fundamental way, we are practicing compassion every time in our practice here and in, in our lives, we are practicing compassion every time we practice or learn how to open to whatever suffering is presenting itself. You know, whether it's in our own bodies, our minds, emotions, in the world. And if we can open to it and be mindful of it, then we can come close to it. So the beginning of compassion is empathy. You know, and empathy is when we take a moment to simply feel what is going on in another person. 
And this stopping, this stopping, even for a few moments is so important because very often we may be cognizant of the fact that somebody's in distress or that there's a situation of suffering, but we don't actually take a few moments to let it in. So empathy is that moment of stopping and actually feeling what the situation is. It's like we're feeling in ourselves, even for a few moments, what the other person is experiencing. So empathy, you could think of it as the heart or the mind of inclusion. It's just including all aspects of our experience and we're letting it in. Ryokan, who I've mentioned several times, you know, the 18th century Japanese Zen master, poet, hermit, you know, he lived up in the mountains by himself and just would wander through the villages and playing with the children and an extraordinary person. So he has uh, his uh, great haiku poet also, there's books of his poetry. And he has one poem which is one of the most unusual expressions of empathy. I love this. I've forgotten my begging bowl, but no one would steal it. No one would steal it. How sad for my begging bowl. (laughs) (laughs) He had empathy for his poor old begging bowl. It was so battered and beat up, nobody would steal it. So we can practice this empathy in lots of different situations, you know, here on retreat, maybe, maybe there's somebody, you know, a yogi who's sitting next to you or in the dining room, you know, and maybe they're restless or agitated in some way and, you know, you have some moments of irritation, you know, why, why are they disturbing my practice? That's keeping it out, you know. So empathy would, oh, can I let this in? There's, I think there are very few people who choose to be agitated. You know, there's some suffering going on. There's there's some difficulty going on. Can we drop down and let that in? And as we let it in, our response changes. Instead of the self-centered reactivity, how is this affecting me? We begin to connect with the suffering that's there. We begin to open to the suffering that's there. The great lesson in all of this is that how we feel and respond in any situation is up to us. Nobody makes us feel a certain way. Maybe saying it another way, nobody makes us relate to our feelings in a particular way. You know, so if we see a reactivity in our minds, we can be mindful of that and let it go. Not be identified with it. 
when we understand that the attitude in our mind is up to us, that's where the freedom is. Then in any situation, we can practice this openness. So as, as most of you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, who is kind of the leader of the democracy movement in Burma, she was under house arrest for, I don't know, 17 or 18 years. And then some years ago, you know, the situation in the government changed. She was released from house arrest. And she was having an interview with an Australian newspaper. And they were asking her about how she felt about these generals who not only had put her under house arrest, but were brutal. You know, it was a brutal regime and lots of people in prison. And the reporter asked her, you know, upon her release, don't you want to bring these generals down? And she responded, no, I want to bring them up. There's <laughs> such a simple and profound shift of perspective. So we have that possibility if we're tuning it. Yes, the generals both caused a lot of suffering, but were also mired in their own suffering. You know, all those mind states that caused those actions. No, I don't want, I don't want more suffering. I want to bring them up. I want to help awaken them. So empathy brings us close to suffering, but compassion actually takes us a step further. You know, and as Thich Nhat Hanh expressed it, he said compassion is a verb. So compassion is the quality in the mind. Empathy brings us close and connected and, and open to the suffering that's there. And compassion then is that motivation to want to do something about it. How can I help in this situation? So it's compassion which motivates us to act. And this becomes, you know, a beautiful and engaging practice in our lives in the world. Just as we go through the day in our lives, in all the various situations that we find ourselves, what would it be like just to have as a kind of background modality, oh, how can I help? What, what can I do you know, in this situation to alleviate suffering? And it could be some very small things. You know, it could be just a few words of kindness or being attentive or, you know, a small act of generosity. We shouldn't overlook just these small daily opportunities to activate, to practice this compassionate responsiveness. They're significant. Some years ago I saw a documentary called A Small Act. And it was a story of a Swedish woman, middle-aged Swedish woman, her name was Hilda Beck, who had been contributing to just a fund in Sweden that helped poor children in Kenya who couldn't afford an education to continue with their education. So she was just making this small monthly donation. 
One of the children she helped was a boy named Chris Maburu. So this, these funds helped him finish high school, go to university, go to law school. He got a, a Fulbright fellowship to go to Harvard. He got a master's in uh, something like international law or civil rights law, something like that. He went back to Kenya practicing this, he started his own foundation to help you know, the poor kids get their education. And so the documentary just traced this whole unfolding. And it all started with just a small act. You know, just somebody making a monthly donation. Not a huge big thing. But we never know the consequences. You know, small acts can have huge ripple effects. So we don't want to overlook these opportunities. This compassion in action can also take the form of being willing to learn. You know, it's so easy for us to stay in our comfort zone in our lives. We all, we all have a zone. We're comfortable with how things are. But what happens when we start to play the edges a bit? You know, we've had a very interesting and powerful experience of this here at IMS. Just in recent years, the whole institution and the board and the staff and the teachers really have undertaken a commitment to an initiative for greater diversity, you know, of people coming to practice. It's been a huge learning curve, huge, of just opening to the suffering that exists in our society, you know, the kind of racism that's present, that is very easy, kind of as a white person, to just be oblivious, you know, not to come into contact with, not to be open to. And so the doorway to that compassion is closed, not even, not even aware, we're not even coming close. And so being willing to just learn, to see, to get outside of our comfort zone, oh, what can be understood here? And it's been tremendous, you know, and there've been so many benefits already from the work that's been done. And of course, there's a huge amount more to do. So it's another, it's another form of practicing compassion, being willing to come closer to suffering that we may have been closed off to. Sometimes compassion manifests as acts of tremendous courage. So there's one story which <laughs> is so unusual, and I don't necessarily recommend it, but just as an example of a possibility. Some years ago in New York, there was a situation where Somebody was in the subway uh, on the platform and fell onto the tracks. And a subway train was coming. And this man, Wesley Autry, he became known as the subway hero. He was a lot of, a lot of press attention. Just in a moment, 
he jumped onto the tracks, lay down on top of her, and the train went over both of them, and they were safe. So this is what he said. You know, because obviously, he got a lot of press coverage. So he said, I don't feel like I did something spectacular. I just saw someone who needed help. I did what I felt was right. I do construction work in confined spaces a lot. So I looked and my judgment was pretty right. The train did have enough room for me. You know, just think of that moment, you know, where you see that situation. And again, he had the necessary conditions for him to be able to do that. And most likely most of us wouldn't have that kind of understanding. But to see that when those conditions are there, that spontaneous response of compassion, you know, situation of suffering, how can I help? I can help, and it happens. So just, you know, what would it be like just to kind of go through life with this, with cultivating this quality or this attitude? You know, and we're all, we're all on the path of it. It's a practice. You know, and sometimes we'll find, you know, where we do pull back. We don't want to deal with it. But if we're mindful, we see that. You know, and we, we work with that and then begin again. What's important in understanding this cultivation of compassion, this ceaselessly responsive quality of the heart and mind, is that there is no hierarchy of compassionate action. It's not that some kinds of compassionate actions are better than others, are higher than others. You know, we each have our own skills, our own talents, like Wesley Autry. We each find our own way in this. The field of compassion is the field of suffering beings. It's limitless. And so each one of us in our own lives, if we're mindful, you know, and can stay open to the suffering that presents itself, whether it's in ourselves or in others or in society, then in our lives we find ourselves taking an active engagement with the world. And it doesn't take any particular form. You know, it, could, it could be on the front lines of social action. It could be sitting in a cave in the mountain, practicing meditation with the motivation, may I become awakened for the benefit of all. Now just think of the Bodhisattva before his enlightenment, the many lifetimes. You know, he's, he probably sat in caves. You know, I could just hear his parents say, oh, what is he doing? What a wastrel. <laughs> because in, in understanding, you know, our whole unfolding path, we can't just take a, you know, a simple slice of life and say, oh, this is what compassion means. No, it's, this is a big, long journey. And it all depends on what the motivation is that we carry into our actions. Whether it's active engagement in the world, whether it's sitting in a cave. 
know, is our motivation, can I be engaged in this for the welfare, for the benefit of all beings? So we need to have a lot of humility with this. You know, it's like we're planting small seeds of this aspiration. As the Dalai Lama said, changes in attitudes never come easily. The development of love and compassion is a wide round curve that can be negotiated only slowly not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. You know, this is our practice. This is the great work we're all doing together. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.